You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Please stand for the reading of the word. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition will I make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. 
today we return to Samuel, um, and uh, we pick up in a pretty momentous, um, I, I would say climactic point in, in the narrative that's, as it's unfolded so far. Um, things are both going to get worse and far, far better uh, before we get to the end of um, First and Second Samuel, um, but today is a fairly glorious day. But it's been a few months, maybe a month, maybe six weeks, uh, since we were in First Samuel, um, and so today we're going to take a, a bit of time to consider why First Samuel, why do we approach this book the way that we are, um, and to, to be reminded again of what exactly we should be looking for. Um, as uh, the elders and I, as we kind of set out um, to teach this book, to preach this book, um, as we considered where we would be this year as a church, at this, this pace though it might be several years, um, we, the, what was the thing, what's the thing that drives a lot of what's happening um, as we study that book? So I want us to consider that, um, and then we're going to take a short moment to just consider where we've come so far, and then we're going to look at um, a fairly simple layout of what, what happens here in 1 Samuel 11, um, and then we'll be done. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's pray and ask for God's help, that the Spirit of God would come and open our eyes to behold marvelous things in his word. Let's pray. So Father, we come and we come before this ancient book, this good book, this book that we confess is your words. So Lord, we come to listen to you speak and we ask God that your spirit would come and enlighten our eyes to behold and to see and to believe and to live in the light of marvelously true things um, that you say to us in this text. So God, change us and make us a people um, who are marked by the presence of your spirit, that are marked by a, a deep and abiding fear of you, that are marked by um, a love for our king, that are um, um, into the practice of worship, um, and that that worship would give way ultimately in our lives to joy. In your name we pray, amen. Um, I believe that we have one fundamental need. One great need above everything else in this day and age. And it has been my prayer. I've been renewed um, in a sense of this is what we're here for. This is why we gather on Sundays uh, more than anything else is that what you and I need, what, what you need when you come in this room, whether this is what you think you need um, or what you thought you needed when you came to this room, is we need again a vision of the majesty and the beauty and the holiness of God. You see, your life is immersed in stuff. Lots of it wonderful. Wonderful things like steak and wine. Been appreciating steak the last couple of weeks. Um, you're immersed in a city that is beautiful. You, you, you see out to our west mountains that, that, that reach up into the skies that, that should still take your breath away. Many of you have children, the children to rejoice over and to, to marvel at the fact that these little things, they exist and they breathe and they scream at you and they eat. Like you are surrounded day in and day out with lots and lots and lots of stuff and hardly ever in our day-to-day -day lives is there someone calling you to lift your head and consider the greatness and the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God. 
And in the midst of all that stuff, you're inundated with messages and technologies that are designed, please hear me, are designed by people, some of the smartest people on the planet, spending billions of dollars writing software and television programming and commercials and sweeping films designed to shrink the measure of your life to yourself, to your own feelings, to your own desires, to your own measure of what things are. And so you have in your life wonderful gifts and then this constant pressure. And it's everywhere. You, you can't drive down I-70 without seeing it on billboards, blocking your view of the mountains, calling you to think primarily of yourself, to think primarily of your emotions, to think primarily of your own affections and the measure of your own, your own life and your own success and your own comforts and your own pain and, and other people's violations of your rights, to think primarily of yourself. In other words, to shrink the size of your life to merely yourself such that you become Huge in your own mind. And God becomes, if he's there at all, an accessory to your life. Something small. Now, there's a number of problems with that. Most notably is that kind of life becomes a kind of endless, narcissistic, selfish, anxiety-ridden life. Constantly seeking, no, no, demanding your life become the measure of everyone else's life. Constantly seeking and demanding to present in a particular way, to be impressive. That was me tap dancing. Um, the measure of your life becomes you. The center of the universe becomes you. The measure of all things becomes you. The measure of the value of another person becomes how they make you feel. And such a life is oddly enough shrunken even as we feel our own bigness. This approach to life is reinforced everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. Such a life is sad. Tragic, really. So what can save us from this life? But what can help us to feel our smallness. There's something 
remarkably liberating and joy-birthing when you realize how small you are. Now, there's two ways of helping people to feel their smallness. One of them is deadly. One of them is absolutely essential for life. The deadly way is for people to feel discarded, mistreated, to be mistreated, to be abused. The second way, the way actually that leads to life and to joy and to humility and to virtue and to obedience and to hope it's found in the clear air of the Bible. Clear air of, of seeing and beholding the beauty and the majesty of God. Um, you, you go... Go to Glacier National Park. I think I've used the Grand Canyon in the past. Now I've decided that Glacier surpasses the Grand Canyon in beauty and majesty. Some of you think that's blasphemy. We'll have that debate when we have more time. You drive into Glacier National Park. No one goes there to build up their self-esteem. Right? I don't know if you've been there. Use the Grand Canyon. You, you, use Rocky Mountain National Park for all. Well, I don't care. Choose a beautiful, majestic place. When you pull into the gates of Glacier National Park, you drive, it's about a 15 minute drive as you're kind of driving through the woods and you kind of start seeing stuff peek out over the trees, and then you come into on the first part of driving to the sun drive road, driving this on road, you start to pull up and you see mountains. No one in that moment goes, look how amazing I am. I I don't want to meet the person who would say that. There there might be a person. But you, you, you pull into that place and you think how small am I? And you would think, given kind of the last several decades of of our approach to human psychology, you would think, what a soul-crushing moment. (laughs) Here I am in the face of these mountains and I feel how small I am. It's not building up my self-esteem. I'm seeing something so much bigger and more glorious and more beautiful than I could ever imagine. Things that we could never make if in a million years we tried. Like here is glory. And I feel in that moment small and joyful. So there are two ways to feel your smallness and I would commend to you that the Bible holds out 
this way, that when we open the pages of this book, we don't behold primarily a story about us. We don't behold primarily a list of propositions about us. We find some of those things there, but underlying the whole of Scripture is a declaration, a story, um, a, a revelation of the glory and the majesty and the holiness of God. And I would say in this precise moment. This is what you and I need more than anything. To see him. To marvel at him and to feel our smallness. When we come to Samuel, we have a particularly helpful part of the Bible for seeing that. Because we read here an ancient story about an ancient people with kings and and things like the Amorites and a king, like who would ever go for a king named Nahash? Like like you, you have all of these stories and you might be drawn to think, to ask the question, what in the world does this have to do with me? And you would in that moment betray the spirit of our age. Believing that the primary task of the Bible is to be about you. To make much of you. The primary point of First and Second Samuel is to make much of God. You just see and behold a sovereign, terrifying, good, merciful, holy God. And in the light of that, to feel your smallness. And in feeling your smallness, to know joy. There's a wonderful kind of commentary in the entirety of the Old Testament called He Gave Us Stories. (laughs) It is precisely the problem, at least for some of us, with the Old Testament. Um, you, you see, I think a lot of us are attracted to um, disembodied declarations of theological or philosophical ideas. And yet when we come to the Bible, we find stories about people, about nations, and about wars, and about blood, and about massacres, and about oceans being ripped in two. And you find these things, and these things, these stories, are what tell us about the majesty, and the glory, and the wonderful and terrible holiness of God. Consider what we've seen so far. Um, we've seen in 1 Samuel terrible holiness of God. Remember where we started. There were people there at the end of Judges, which culminates with the, it kind of is the, the overlap with the first, the first few chapters of 1 Samuel. You saw people who had departed from the ways of God and had set out to do what is right in their own eyes. 
And so again and again and again, um, they, they rebel against the God who had rescued them, the God who had spoken to them, the God who had um, given them his law, um, the God who had saved them out of slavery. They rebel against him. Um, and so in his judgment, his chastising judgment, his terrible chastising judgment, he would send the Philistines or the next group over um, to come into Israel and to slaughter them. Consider the terror of God's holiness um, as, the, um, as the Philistines march in conquering Israel as a fulfillment of the judgment of God. And they take the Ark of the Covenant and they set it, and this is the, the best part so far, anyway, in 1 Samuel. They take the Ark, the sign and marker of the very presence of God, and they set it at the feet of Dagon, their deity. What happens to that deity? Falls on his face and his head comes off. And then a plague strikes town after town after town throughout Philistia um, as they are trying to (coughs) mock and belittle the God of Israel. And what does God do? He flips the tables. What must he be like? We've seen the sovereign mercy of God. As a people who'd forgotten how to pray, in the midst of it, he raises up a woman who falls on her face named Hannah to plead with God to give her a child and this child would bring about the establishment of justice and righteousness in Israel. And Samuel, Again, the mercy of God as the word that was remembered in 1 Samuel 3, the word that was rare, um, the appearance of God's words to God's people just wasn't happening anymore. And then by the end of 1 Samuel 3, with the arrival of Samuel and the word of God returned. This is a story about God. Don't get stuck asking, what does this have to do with me? At one level, nothing. At another level, everything. It tells us about the God who is there that you and I have to deal with whether we want to or not. The God who is absolute goodness and beauty and majesty and sovereignty. It tells us about God. Therefore, it lifts our gaze from the smallness of our lives to behold the beauty and the majesty and to marvel the God who is there. So what has all of this been building to? It's, it's a, actually a remarkable story so far. It's been building um, from this place of complete and absolute decadence and darkness um, that you arrive at at the end of the book of Judges and at the beginning of 1 Samuel. 
The word of the Lord is rare. The teaching of the words of God, the appearance of God, and therefore the worship and the prayer of God's people is rare in the land. Here is um, the covenant people of God meant to demonstrate and to be a light to the nations of the earth, and they have abandoned their God. And wickedness and darkness and sin and evil reigns everywhere. And in the midst of that darkness And the silence of God, we hear the prayers of a barren woman. So Hannah comes and she prays, and God answers her prayer. She has a son named Samuel who is given to the Lord to serve in the tabernacle, and he, his coming, marks the return of the words of God to God's people. Where else have we been? We saw the journey of the ark in exile. Um, And then right before Christmas, we saw the people of God demanding, even in the face of God's faithfulness, demanding a king like the other nations. Someone who would fight for them. And they want, sinfully want, Government to rule over them, government to parent them. So Samuel warns them of what will come. They dismiss his warnings and demand a king like the other nations. If you remember, we found here a sinful request that was according to God's plan all along. What must he be like? that he can even take your and I's rebellion against him and use them as a means, a mechanism for fulfilling his good purposes. What must he be like? And last, a man named Saul is chosen. Chosen by God, chosen by Samuel, Chosen by Lot, chosen by the people. We saw right before, moved into Advent, he seems to be a humble man, a kingly prophet. So that's where things ended in chapter 10. And now we come to chapter 11. And we have the first sign of what Saul's kingdom will be like and oh it is a good start it's going to go poorly we know this but right here at the beginning we see something marvelous but to see kind of all the different things that are going on in this text we need to get out of the way <coughs> a handful of names and places It kind of tell us that there's a whole lot more of significance happening in this story um, than just the defeat of one army by another one um, and finally kind of the um, the inauguration, if you will, of Saul to be king. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on here um, that I want us to see um, because all of these places and names are significant. We'll talk about Nahash in just a minute. Kind of want that to be the the bridge into our takeaways from this text. But um, first, you have Jabesh Gilead. Um, if you'll remember, in the book of Judges, Judges ends with this pr- pretty horrific story um, uh, of a woman being cut to pieces and sent 
um, to all the corners of Israel. Um, and then Israel, because this great evil was committed um, by, uh, um, by this um, other particular city, um, the tribe of Benjamin, they come and they make war on the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and there was one city, and that city was Jabesh Gilead, um, that refused to go and execute God's judgment on this horrific act, this um, horrific act of evil and injustice. And so, um, as a result of that, Israel then comes and makes war on Jabesh Gilead, um, and they save uh, a, um, a, a group of women from that city, um, and they are then married to the remnants of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and so, why does that matter? Why did you tell us that terrible story? Um, well, one, it's not about you. And two, um, the, the, the reason why this story matters is we, for you to remember, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. So he's got family in this town. So this man named Nahash, this king, comes and begins to build a siege against Jabesh Gilead. And the people of Jabesh say to Nahash, this terrible king, make a treaty with us and we'll serve you. But then Nahash, the Ammonite, says to them, only on this condition will I make a treaty with you. I'm going to gouge out all your right eyes. Thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh have this strange request. They say, give us seven days. Give us seven days. We're going to go see if there's anyone else out there who wants to help us. Now, what's the significance of that? The significance of that is um, Nahash and his people aren't just there to capture one city. Um, like if they were just there to capture one city, then they're not going to give them these seven days um, to go get help. In the end, they want to conquer all of Israel. So fine, if you want to go get everybody together, you can just do this in one, one quick swoop, kill everybody, and be done with it. So he gives them seven days, and they sing, um, send word out to the rest of Israel. The rest of Israel is sad. Upset, scared. So next, Saul comes and he calls all the people of Israel to come to Bezek. Now, what is Bezek? And Bezek is the site of Joshua's last victory over the Canaanites, over um, the nations um, that had opposed Israel coming into the promised land. Um, there was a king there in Bezek who conquered 70 kingdoms, um, 70 everywhere it appears in the Bible, particularly when it talks about 70 nations or 70 kingdoms, um, is kind of a symbol, a symbolic marker of all the nations of the earth. And so here is a place where there was a king who, who presumed to have conquered all the nations of the earth. Um, we actually think he was less important than that, but that was um, the marker, the symbol. And so Saul then calls the people of Israel to come to the city of Bezek to rally there in order to come and make War. Then you have, after the battle unfolds, you have um, Samuel calling the people to Gilgal. Gilgal is where Joshua called the people of Israel together to renew covenant with God. Here in this story, they're going to renew covenant with God. And then last, Nahash. Who's Nahash? Interestingly enough, this name, Nahash, the exact same word translated as serpent or dragon in Genesis chapter 3. 
so here at the beginning of Saul's reign, here in the midst of the garden now called Israel, a new king named Saul is being established. And his first test, his first test is a serpent, a dragon, seeking to destroy his family, ultimately seeking to destroy his people and the garden itself. So what happens? The text tells us a couple of things that unfold. First, the Spirit of God came mightily upon Saul. Now as the Spirit of God came mightily upon Saul, Saul was then filled with two things. One, the ability to see what this was all about. Um, He he cuts up the livestock and sends it to Israel. Um, This is uh, not to be read as a threat against Israel, uh, but rather a, a kind of prophetic declaration that if we don't stop this, this is what will happen to all of you. And so first, he's given a prophetic vision, an understanding of this is actually what's at stake in what's unfolding in this small town. It's far bigger than this small town. It actually has to do with the whole of Israel. It has to do with our covenant standing before God. It has to do with our prospering and our life in the midst of the land before God. These people intend to destroy us. And second, he's given authority. The Spirit of God comes upon him and he sees where all this is going. And secondly, he's given authority to command that the, the, the people of Israel come together to fight against the serpent, the dragon. And 330,000 people show up to fight. That is a kind of authority that was born of the Spirit of God. And he speaks, describes, What's happening in the world? The people hear it and they come. Something happens before they come. What is that? It says that the fear of the Lord descended on all the people. Not the fear of the Amorites. Not the fear of Nahash. Not the fear of Saul. The fear of the Lord. Second, they come. Third, they come because of this fear. Third, the Amorites are routed, scattered, such that there's not even two of them left standing together after the battle. Then the people rally to this king who'd been anointed by the Spirit of God, given authority. They come to make him king. Some say we should kill those who are moaning against his authority and his rule. And then Saul exercises again, behaving in a kingly fashion, exercises restraint and humility and refuses to kill them. After he is then crowned as king, covenant is renewed with God, worship is restored, and the people are filled with joy. It's a good start, right? It's going to last about a chapter. (laughs) But it's a good start. Here's what I want us to learn from it. What does God do when he establishes or renews 
his kingdom. What does he do? What does it look like? When God begins to work in a place like Denver to establish his throne and his reign and his goodness over all things. I I want you to know that one of the things that we can learn from the fact that he has given us stories is that when God does this, it's not just in your heart. He does it in history. He does it in real relationships. He does it with real businesses and politics. He does it in real churches and real people and real families. He does it with, in real life. It's not just kind of a, a mood that gets set on the people of God so we feel good stuff. He does it objectively. He does it clearly. He does it historically. So that everybody sees it. Some people love it. Some people hate it. What does it look like? The Spirit of God comes upon somebody. (laughs) Somebody has suddenly a kind of authority. Authority to see what's happening in the world, to see what's happening in a family, to see what's happening in a political situation, to see what's happening in a business, to see what's happening in a neighborhood, to see what's happening in a church. And then he begins to speak the words of God, the will of God with authority. So the first is you have to rightly see what's happening around us and speak words of God over that situation. You'll also notice that Saul, when he hears these things and the Spirit of God comes upon him, what does it tell us? It tells us he's angry. Do you often, do you think in our time, we think often that a sure sign of the Spirit of God or the spirituality of a person is their anger. No, we think of them as like Zen masters. Happy, nice, calm. But the text says that he's enraged. This is some of the strongest language imaginable for anger. Now there is an anger that's sin. There is an anger that's born of the very presence of the Spirit of God. So, the Spirit of God comes upon God's man and with humility he speaks with anger sometimes but with great authority, the very words of God. Those words come and the fear of the Lord falls. Not fear of that man, not fear of their own preferences, not a fear of what other people might think about them, not a fear of um, I might be misinterpreted or misunderstood. Uh, A people are marked and grounded in an absolute terror 
of God. And above all else, they fear him. They fear his judgments. They see him as the center of the universe, the center of their lives, the center of everything. And they tremble before him. And they come, and they come to his king. The, the, the main point of the story of First and Second Samuel is not Saul, it's not Samuel, it's ultimately not even David. But all of it points ahead to the coming of God's king, Jesus. The son of David who reigns over all the nations of the earth. And so the people of God, marked by the fear of God, come repenting of their sins and return to their father by coming to Jesus, their king. And coming to Jesus, their king, we watch as God defeats all of his enemies, all of the enemies, um, primarily the serpent himself and wickedness and sin and all that would enslave and blacken the right eye of God's people. He comes and he conquers them. And then what happens next? The people of God hail their king, honor their king, and worship their Lord. They worship their Lord and their lives are marked by joy. What does it look like when the kingdom of God comes? What does renewal and revival look like? It looks like a people being called again to fear the Lord. Being called again to gather together to make war on their great enemy, the dragon, the serpent. In all of the ways he rears his head and his power historically. A people making war on that serpent and trusting in their king, declaring their king as Lord over everything, and worshiping our God, and then filled with joy. This is what the kingdom should look like. This is what the kingdom of God has looked like again and again and again throughout the history of the Bible and the history of the church. People scattered, people in sin, people who have no fear of God before their eyes and a word goes forth and they fear God and they come to their King Jesus. And then they are filled with joy. I pray that this might mark us as a people. Beholding this God, fearing this God, and in the fear of the Lord, coming to our King, finding their joy. Let's pray.